Support for this week's episode is provided by Downtown Ithaca Alliance, working for the community to make Downtown Ithaca a vibrant place for all. Information about events, local businesses, and more at downtownithaca.com. I'm Crystal Sorakis. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. My guest today is poet Sierra DeMulder. She's a two-time National Poetry Slam champion, a five-time published author, and the co-host of Just Break Up, a globally popular advice podcast that's been downloaded more than four million times. Sierra lives in upstate New York with her wife and daughter. Her latest collection of poetry is Ephemera. Sierra, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled, thrilled to speak with you. Do you remember the first poem you read that just grabbed you? You know, I remember my aunt giving me a copy of Wild Geese by Mary Oliver when I was a teenager. And that side of my family, you know, books were the gift currency. You know, my grandmother always gave me books for Christmas. And I remember reading Wild Geese and truthfully being too young to really be moved with it the way I am now, you know, in my late 30s. And But I do remember reading it and thinking, I want to do this. I want to I want to speak with words in a way that commands people. How do you start learning how to do that? Um for me, I think, you know, I was always a creative uh young person. I was really into visual art and I went to college originally for art therapy and then my whole life was sort of rerouted when I went to a campus open mic once. And that was the first time I saw someone performing spoken word. And I had read poetry and enjoyed it, like I said. But that was the first time that I saw someone, you know, making a poem come alive, not so much theatrically, but in a very human way, you know, in like, like their humanness was standing up there trying to reach out to mine. And I sort of followed the rabbit hole of poetry after I saw that. I started surrounding myself by other young writers. Um, I started going to open mics and my peers and my friends and I at the time, we were all kind of in this like-minded obsession with writing. I was really lucky to to go through my 20s surrounded by some really amazing writers. And um, we didn't go the traditional route of a, you know, many of us didn't go the traditional route of an MFA. Um, We just read poetry and listened to poetry and workshopped each other and performed for each other and edited each other's work. And I credit a lot of my uh, publishing success, poetry success to having that early community that was like, like like-minded, like-mindedly obsessed with writing the way I was. You know, I've read three of your collections now, and you write about things that are just very personal. Is it hard to put these poems out into the world for other people to read? 
it's funny thinking about it now. I, I said I'm in my I'm in my late 30s now. I and I started writing 18, 19, 20, entered that community around 21. And I think I had a certain amount of, I don't know, naivete maybe or passion, like I said. It was sort of always easy for me to share really personal things through writing. I think because when I was younger, I saw the power of it. I saw how it connected people, how it moved people, how storytelling and representation empower people. And I was just so drawn to that, that I used to describe it in in older interviews as like my love for poetry and that sort of connection as Wiley e. Coyote running off of the cliff, you know, and just <laughs> going for it, you know, just, just running, you know, and not looking down. And I know that's probably a funny way to describe, you know, it's talking about really vulnerable things, writing about really vulnerable things and putting them out to a whole world of readers. But I did it like that when I was younger. And now it's sort of like sec- second nature. Um, because like I've said, I, I did see the impact of sharing and storytelling. We all need to hear our stories told by other people. Um, and I think it's so cathartic and empowering. Of course, it is personal, but f- for some reason, I think I'm just wired a little differently. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that you're going to read a few of your poems today. Let's start with one that I just I find so beautiful. Will you read Waiting for us and tell us a little about it? Yes. Waiting is the first poem in Ephemera, and it's, it opens the first section. There are four sections in the book, and the the first one is really about endings of all different kinds, um, particularly the passing of my grandmother. I had the absolute privilege, and I use that word intentionally, of taking care of my grandmother with my aunts and mother while she was on hospice care. And it was just one of those life experiences that, that you know, you walk through a threshold and you are not the same anymore. Um, and so this is about that time waiting. While my grandmother waits for death in the other room, her lips cracked as brown sugar, her fingers moving in sleep against the buttons of her nightgown, the women in my family play cards. They forget to eat, cry about past lovers, sort bills and outdated subscriptions. They sit on the floor, taking turns massaging out the grief and answering worried calls from friends, clergy, neighbors, who sloppily soak the phone with their regret. I should have called earlier, but the holidays, you know. There is a camaraderie among women and death. Both know how to become a vigil to be busy and still, an usher from one room to the next. One sister drove through the night. One daughter wore the same clothes for a week. I was wrong. My grandmother isn't waiting for death, instead drifting in and out of a much softer word. It is the living who wait, who count the hours, the morphine doses, the last requests for ice chips with their card games and their tears and their own hushed regrets from all the time they had nothing to wait for. You know, I think this is such a beautiful piece to me. 
in part because I've had that experience. I've done that mm-hmm. vigil with family members. And you mentioned that this is something that you went through too. How does writing about an experience like that help you process your own emotions? I feel like it's it's pivotal. You know, I feel like poetry is my heart's hidden language. And I feel like the ability to grasp that moment, that sensation, you know, the shuffling around the house, the the shared meals, the the hushed voices, to be able to articulate that is to be able to hold it and name it a little bit more clearly or or differently. Um, I think poetry allows us to work through something instead of just move on to the next thing. I love the specificity of poetry oftentimes, like the the way it can capture a single moment or an essence of something and bottle it despite the maybe bittersweetness of it. I'm a nerd about writing process conversation. So mm-hmm. when you're writing a poem that has so many emotional layers in it, how do you also separate yourself as the writer who has to pay attention to craft, who has to pay mm. attention to the edit? How does that work for you? That's a great question. I think I think a younger me used to write it out, just, you know, word vomit onto the page, whatever emotional thing I had to say. But the writer I am now has sort of integrated the editing process into the emotional record of it. Also, the editing of a poem is emotional to me. Finding that right word, finding the sharpness, finding the point of entrance, you know, to tap into the exact moment, the exact essence that I'm trying to convey, that is emotional to me because when I I know when I get it right, I can feel it. So at this point in my writing um, process, I sort of write and edit as I go. And that can ebb and flow depending on the poem and the moment but they're they're very in tandem for me at this point. Hmm. I know that you've written several poems about abortion, about making that decision. But Mm -hmm. what struck me when reading these is that you're able to really delve into the emotional nuances of a decision like that, especially these, these words that say, you know, that had that share that longing for children, but not now. And I think that captures that range of emotions that a woman may feel having that experience. Was that a deliberate attempt for you to connect to women who have gone through this? Absolutely. I mean, you know, outside of a literary conversation, um, so many of our human experiences are forced into some sort of binary or black and white thinking and the poetry is in the nuance and the reality is in the nuance you know there is i would rather hear a poem about that gray area about the human experience of of the complex human experience really than than 100% one way or 100% the other um and in the series of poems that you're talking about again in this first se- this first uh, section about endings, um, it was really important for me to paint a picture of the complexity of of this human right that is at stake. And, and you know, those 
those poems are actually, as a quick aside, those poems are some of the older poems in this book. Um, the majority of the poems have been, were written in the last five years of my life. And those poems I wrote right at the beginning of Trump's presidency. I was doing a 30-30, which is like you write 30 poems in 30 days. And I was doing it in November, November randomly. And when he was elected, I, I just didn't know where to go creatively. I didn't know what to write about because um, so much of the country was in great mourning and devastation. Um, so I wrote about our bodily autonomy. I want to ask you to read a pair of poems now that feel like they go together. Who made the music in hours before dawn? Would you do that for us? Yes, definitely. Who made the music after Mary Oliver? Who made the first sound, held it in their mouth, pushed air and life into it until it went galloping through the woods like a once stillborn calf? Who discovered music? The first foot stomp turned bass drum, turned rain percussion on a thatched roof. Who made the auto harp, a hundred strings slicing across her belly like gills? Who found the voice? The hollow trunk of throat, uvula, larynx, a pocket watch of muscle. Who named the ground for kneeling? Who first imagined heaven, decided to sing upwards, calling upon the waiting room of everyone we love, a pearly gated community, a cream for every gullied brow? I don't know exactly what a prayer is, but tonight I listened to a dying woman sing, her body waterless, her tongue a dark dry rose. She knew all the words, even from the other side of Morphine's pond, and they were the kind of songs played from wood that speak of lonesome valleys and lost sheep, and her body was at peace, and her cancer was at peace, and her soul, oh, her soul, was everywhere in that room, and it moved through the air, and it moved within me. And if I sit real quiet, I can still feel it there. And that, that must be a prayer. And the second poem. Hours before dawn, I read Mary Oliver poems to my grandmother, my feet propped on the childlike railing of her hospice bed, my thighs turning to pin cushions until my voice is hoarse not nearly as dry as the graying woman beside me, being taken slowly, not by cancer, though it has been cruel, but by the steady hardening of dehydration. I read about black bears, sticky with honey, and roses, their expanding faces unfurrowed by such living frivolities like fear or importance. I must tell you, every poem is about death when you are reading to the dying. Even common words shrug off their working clothes to reveal their true evening desires. Occasionally, my grandmother raises a spotted hand and asks me to repeat a line as though it were a sunrise or a candy she wishes to savor just a bit longer. Mary Oliver once wrote three poems about her dying friend, but they were really more about what particles on earth were shifted or repurposed when that soul was called home. Do we just stop, like the hard click of a cassette player, or do we close our eyes for a moment, only to open to new scenery, a new but familiar form, like a mama fox or one of her kits or a snowdrift yawning over a field? 
Her eyes are closing now, so I soften my voice to water. Her breath slows, deepens, a stream becoming a river. My final words, barely a whisper. Without opening her eyes, my grandmother says, you're drifting away, or maybe I am. I think it's both of us, I say, and then her sleep is real. There, there is a line in this one in particular that I think, I, I know you've had this experience of reading a poem, loving a poem, but then there are some lines that just kind of inscribe themselves. Mm, yes. You know, to you. And every poem is about death when you're reading to the mm. dying. Just mm. did that come to well, you all at once? Yes. And, and, and I'm so glad it meant something to you because, um, you know, it's funny reading those poems together because I feel like, you know, who made the music is more maybe fantastical, you know, more imaginative. It was an exercise in imagining who made the first music in the world, you know? Mm. So I was, I was definitely leaning on, um, you know, not reality, but some of my favorite moments in poetry is when reality doesn't need any more, you know, doesn't need any imagery or metaphor to make it more poetic than just what is. And I feel like that experience I had with my grandmother, it was a poem, it wrote itself, you know, that moment was a poem and everything in it is true. I, I remember we were taking shifts and I had the early morning shift and at 3.30 in the morning, she was awake and she wanted me to read to her. And I, and as you read, especially a poet like Mary Oliver, you know, again, like I said at the beginning, I didn't get her <laughs> quite like I get her now, um, as, I, as I'm sure I will get her even more as I, as I grow. Um, but all of a sudden, you know, a poem about the trees becomes a poem about time and a, a poem about roses becomes a poem about death. You know, there's no, there was no hidden poem that I had to dig out. It, it, it wrote itself. I also love with this collection, and I don't know if this was intentional for you or not. It's, it's very much, it's very feminine. It's very mm, much I love I think, that. about the experiences of women without, yeah. you know, kind of being too on the nose, if that makes sense. I would say yes, definitely. I mean, it, all of the experiences that I write about in here are not only mine, but were inherently feminine spaces. If they, you know, if that makes sense, like um, my mother and my aunts taking care of my grandmother with me, and in later in the book, I I go through an ectopic pregnancy, trying to get pregnant, and and that was such a unique experience to people who can get pregnant, you know, um, and then carrying new life, my, my daughter. Um, yeah, it was, I also think nature, there's a lot of, um, nature imagery in this book. And I think mm. that there's a lot of feminine energy in the cycles and seasonality of nature. There is another poem I want you to read how to change the pronouns in your love poems. Yeah. I'll give a little preface to this poem, if that's okay. Um, Absolutely. Ephemera is my fifth published collection of poetry. 
And it is actually the first book in which I am openly queer in my writing, unapologetically queer. And I, there are actually poems about my now wife in my very first book published back in 2009, but you wouldn't know it because I hid my sexuality and I hid our love in the poems by avoiding pronouns, by changing the pronouns, by writing to an elusive you instead of a her or she. And it was really important to me personally to to be unapologetically queer in this book. It was a gift to myself and to my marriage. Um, And this poem um, is a little bit sort of references that in in a roundabout way. It's called How to Change the Pronouns in Your Love Poems. You are 18 and drunk for the first time in the bed of a pickup truck next to a girl you call your best friend, but whose mouth you love to watch move. You are cloudy from swigs of cheap vodka passed around a hormonal fire in the middle of a field because that's where parties happen in upstate nowhere. You spent the night dancing with her, giggling like arias and squatting to piss together on the outskirts of light until the world started to twist so the two of you crawled into the truck bed. Somehow, in the haze of liquor and wood smoke, you find her hand and fall asleep watching the stars blur, wondering if she will remember any of this in the morning. Days later, when she starts dating your ex, the first boy who ever loved you, You will glimpse them holding hands on Main Street, fully awake, in the daylight where everyone can see, and you will feel a shipwreck wash ashore inside you. You will tell everyone you're jealous. You will lie and say of her. I love that. Oh, thank you. How is it for you with this book coming out, with this collection coming out uh, last month, um, and being, you know, that you're so open and and just fully embracing your life in your published works as well. You know, it feels um, it feels like a gift, to be honest. Like I, I have identified as some semblance of queer since I was a teenager, as referenced in this book. But it was a different time, and I was a different person. And even though that was always a part of my life over the last several decades, I heteronormativity is, is so comfortable. It's so easy to slip into those different pronouns. You know, it's very easy to edit yourself out of your own work. And also heteronormativity makes it so that when you're editing poems, you know, even when I was editing this collection, I second guessed making it more of a universal you rather than a she referring to my wife, because I thought, you know, there was a, there was someone in me that thought maybe that it'd be more relatable if I kept it genderless, which is always heterosexual, right? It always defers to Mm, that, you know, and I had to push back against that. I had to push back against my own editor inside me that, that wanted to hide 
this part of me, especially, you know, so many of these poems are so personal to me and my marriage and my relationship and our family. And I kind of like, when I caught myself doing that, I, I had to like almost laugh and say, no, this is, this is about my love. This is my real life love. I'm not going to hide. And I think it, it was liberating and euphoric to be honest, to submit this book, knowing that I'm wholly myself, that I was myself in my other books, but I was, I was just presenting a side of myself that I thought was somehow more acceptable and to, and, and, you know, and on top of it, I'm, I'm in love and I'm so proud of my family. So to be writing the story of our family in this book and sharing it with other people who, who might relate to it, it's, it's very meaningful to me. We're almost out of time. Um, can I ask you to read one more? Yes. Would you read Ephemera for us? I would love to. So Ephemera means things that are enjoyed or exist for only a little time. And I did not write this collection with that title in mind. I had the collection and then I looked down at it and the title was so apparent. It was in every poem, even when it wasn't. And when I finally picked the title, I decided to write this poem in honor of it. And it is the last poem in the book. Ephemera. The coffee she brings me in bed becomes cold before I can finish it. My new sweatshirt already has a stain. The irises that circle our house flower for barely a week. The old dog is sleeping more, her muscles atrophied to wet canvas. Tonight, a ravenous sunset swells and heaves itself across our backyard, a body in pleasure, only to be absorbed into darkness like sweat on flesh. Even my daughter, who needs me now as she will never need me again, nursing at my breast as I write this, will be walking by the time it is read. The impermanence of enjoyment is everywhere. The swiftness of peonies, a calendar left on the wrong month. I am watching my life pass. I am watching my lover's body soften, her skin speckled as a robin's egg. Isn't it intoxicating, the ecstatic briefness of it all? Sierra, thank you so much for talking with me and for sharing your poetry with us. Thank you so much, Crystal. It's been an honor. Sierra DeMolder's latest collection of poetry is called Ephemera. It's available now. You can find out more by visiting her website, sierrademolder.com. Support for Off the Page comes from listeners like you. If you've already given to WSKG, thank you so much. You really are making public radio possible. And if you're one of the folks who hasn't yet made that donation, you can do so today by visiting WSKG.org and clicking on Donate. It takes just a few moments, and your participation as a member of public radio really is important today. Thank you again for giving, and thank you so much for listening. Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Siracus. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go Off the Page. Off the Page